welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Well, not just New Haven, but Connecticut is ticking with candidates seeking public office. And folks, we're not talking about this November's sleepy municipal election. We're talking about the 2018 gubernatorial election. That's right, the state is swarming with candidates, saying they have the right stuff to succeed Governor Daniel P. Malloy, who's stepping down. One of those candidates is in the WNHA studio today. Say hello to Steve Opsitnik, a self-described Navy veteran, engineer, and high-tech job creator who's seeking the Republican gubernatorial nomination. Welcome to the studio, Steve, and thanks for coming up to New Haven. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's an honor to be here. It's great to see you. Great to meet you. We're going to give a special thanks to Yale Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. So, Steve, it's been a little less than a month that you're formally running for governor. That's you right. formally announced by October... 1st. October 1st. Okay, how's it going? It's, it's going tremendously well. Um, yeah, I've started an exploratory earlier this year, and previously, about two years ago, I started a group called Imagine Connecticut. Imagine if we were a top 10 job creation state, the problems we'd be talking about now and the opportunities, Paul. And it gave me the opportunity to study, you know, the issues out there and a lot of the solutions. And I've just come to realize that since I graduated from Stanford High over 30 years ago, nothing has changed in Connecticut. In fact, things have gotten worse. Fewer people, fewer jobs, zero economic growth, the loss of GE, the loss of Aetna. And all we have to show in return are deficits and debts as far and wide as the eyes can see. And behind those deficits and debts are the 100 people each and every day who have to move out of Connecticut to find an opportunity somewhere else. And that just really hurts me. All right. And Steve, I'm going to ask you to get real close to that mic while you're talking. So what may, so you, you, you just talked about why someone would want to, what the challenge is for someone who wants to take over the state. But given that, and given that you've never held public office, right? Never been a constable or anything like that. Mm-hmm. What made you want to run for governor? Well, I think the people that have been holding office for these 30 years, you can see what the results have been. So we can talk about the definition of insanity from uh, Einstein. Um, but I've had a collection of experiences over my life. I grew up in Stanford, went to Stanford High. I uh, went to the U.S. Naval Academy, served in uh, there. Former Congressman Stuart McKinney nominated me to Annapolis. And after I got out of uh, Annapolis as an engineer, I came back to Connecticut and spent some time up in uh, Windsor Locks doing my nuclear engineering training and lived in, in uh, Enfield. And then went down to Groton to the submarine base. And so I've lived all over this state. Um, you lived at Groton on the base? Lived at Groton, just off the base, just off, off the base. So it's like a city in itself, or what? Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about the base itself. It's tremendous. Yeah, what, yeah. What, that institution is tremendous, and we have to keep that in Connecticut, regardless of what the federal government wants to do. Uh, that base has to stay in Connecticut. Um, so after, well, how do you keep a federally funded military base in your state if the state, if the federal government doesn't want to fund it? You know, what, you have to have people, elected officials, who are going to fight for it. You know, th- that's what you need, and um, and I, that's something that I will be incredibly passionate about, and we cannot allow it to happen. Um, what would you do in the Navy, Steve? So I was a nuclear engineer. I was what's called the main propulsion assistant. I, was, uh, I ran the nuclear power plant. And uh, when you deploy at sea under, on a fast-tech submarine, mine was the USS Ray Sturgeon class. You're probably shaving with it, Paul. R-A-Y. R-A-Y. Um, and when you deploy for months on end uh, on a nuclear submarine and go under the polar ice cap, you kind of figure out what it means to accomplish your mission. Under the polar ice cap. Yeah, I, I probably spent a good uh, six, nine months of my cumulative life under the polar ice cap chasing Russian submarines around. Really? And uh, What's it like to be confined for that amount of time? They put you through a number of uh, psychological testings to make sure you know that uh, you can handle it. But it's like being in this room like we're in now for six months. You just don't go outside or be in a casino for six months. Um, yeah, it takes some getting used to. Does it break anybody? Like certainly have fears that something's going to spring. spring I mean, you're not free it, at a submarine. Yeah, I, I've had my fair share of people who kind of had some challenges along the way. Um, but normally it happens not at sea, either before or after. 
in addition to testing you to make sure you can cope with it, do they train you in any particular way to deal with living in a confined space? And also, with, you're not just living in confined space. If you're running a nuclear power plant underwater and you're chasing Russian submarines, you have the potential, if you crack, to cause a lot of damage. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you spend a good year and a half training, and the Navy puts you through some of the most rigorous <laughs> academic training I've ever been in. Uh, in nuclear and engineering school. And then when I was up in Windsor Locks, there was a, a Westinghouse run prototype facility, which is like a submarine on land where they lock you in to operate a nuclear power plant before you, they put you out on sea. And then you go to New London for three months of, uh, of submarine school and they put you in damage control chainers and they start flooding it with, you know, 35 degree water and try to reenact the experience of what these things are going to be like to kind of give you a good sense of, of what life will be like. But then ultimately you show up on a submarine and uh, I was a young ensign or lieutenant at the time. And um, uh, I remember my first night going up to the North Sea. I got, I got on board my submarine. They said, just pack a toothbrush. We're going away for you know, basically six months. And uh, my first night at sea, I went, uh, captain of the submarine woke me, up at two, woke me up at two o'clock in the morning. So we're going to go back and I'll show you how to do a zone inspection in the back of the submarine. And we started heading back uh, there. And on the way back, he said, uh, Steve, I'm going to give you the one leadership lesson you need to know in your life. Leaders set tone, tone defines a culture, and your culture is your destiny. And so leaders set tone, tone defines a culture, culture is your destiny. And it's been years that that sat with me in many businesses I've run. And I look back even in the state now where we have a tone right now in Hartford, which is there's a new economic reality. We have fixed costs. We can't manufacture here anymore. And that's what our leadership is telling us. And that creates a culture of people who want to flee that and want to create jobs somewhere else or want to retire in Florida because it's not as expensive. And that creates a destiny that we're in right now, which is a downward spiral. So I believe that tone of leadership is one of the most important things that leaders do in government or in business. The, uh, you say I'd experience a new, what you call the nuclear power plant underwater. There's a debate now going on in Connecticut looking further ahead than just um, the next few years of the energy policy about what's going to happen when the Millstone plant goes offline. Mm -hmm. Is our future to replace that with a new nuclear energy plant? Are you looking at renewables, some kind of combination? Yeah, I, I believe that when nuclear power is done correctly, like the nuclear submarine force, the Navy, has virtually had a flawless um, safety record. When it's done correctly, it is probably the most efficient and safe energy process, short of renewables out there. It's, it's more efficient than a lot of the carbon uh, energy sources we have. Uh, it does come with waste at the end, which you know, obviously has to be managed. Um, so I'm not afraid of nuclear power. I was trained in it. I see the benefits of it. Um, I do believe that we have to look at renewable as well. I, mean, I think right now you have uh, Massachusetts, Massachusetts and Rhode Island are looking at an offshore wind farm. Um, I don't know why Connecticut's not participating in that. And so I think we need to be more aggressive as a state looking at our energy portfolio because, as you know, we have the highest energy prices in the continental United States, only second to uh, Hawaii, which isn't. And why of, is that? I've never understood that. Is you know, it a function of geography? Um, yeah, I, I think it's geography. I think it's market dynamics uh, in a lot of ways. I think we have uh, uh, a deregulated energy system, but there are few players delivering uh, energy to us. We're at the end of the value chain of all these, of natural gas, oil, um, you name it, even now renewable in a lot of ways. We're at the end of the value chain. And what happens is people take their markups along the way. Um, so I think we need to be more competitive at, at using, you know, being able to generate more energy here in Connecticut, getting it to our consumers at a lower price point, especially the manufacturers. Does I have that involve a, a heavier hand for government or a lighter hand? Because you, know, you talk about the safety of the nuclear power yeah. plant you ran underwater. That's a heavily regulated government-regulated operation, which is the Navy. 
Um, there's been a lot of concern in America right now about decline in regulation of industry and where the fears, because, you know, there's been this pendulum with nuclear power. Yes. Originally, it was a green energy that environmentalists um, embraced. Then it became taboo, and environmentalists had to be. And then Obama reclassified it, it and as. And Fred Krupp at EDF, and all these places, all these environmentalists reclaimed it if it can be green. done safely. Yes. I don't hear much about the debate over how much we regulate private industry. Would you support taxing enough and having a big enough government bureaucracy to make sure nuclear power is safe? Well, I think nuclear power right now is, I mean, it is really regulated by, by the federal government. So I have very little concern, and I haven't heard anything that gives me concern, that we are, we are not regulating nuclear enough. Um, I don't think that, that's our issue here in Connecticut. Um, I think it, you know, we have to look at, at how energy comes in, who gets paid to bring it in, what they are charging consumers, hardworking families who are paying the, the highest rates in the state. And uh, I've looked in it a bit, and I think we have to go deeper and understand those flows and, and where, where those economic trade-offs are. Because it's unsustainable. There's a, a business in Bridgeport, I know. It's a manufacturing business. They employ 500 people. Um, if they move to Georgia, they'll save half a million dollars in energy costs. Half a million. Um, I even swallow at that, right? So if we want to retain a manufacturing base here, and look, durable non-durable manufacturing, like T-shirts and things, have been decimated in Connecticut. Um, durable manufacturing, as a segment of our economy, has actually, we've been growing that at about a 1% annual rate of return, uh, annual growth. That's not enough, but at least we're kind of holding our own. But to hold our own and to grow at a 3% GDP, we need to address things like energy costs for our manufacturers in Connecticut. All right, and we're addressing you from Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM, your home for community radio, 103.5 FM, live, steamed at newhavenindependent.org. So Janet Koch just though, weighed in, listening on Facebook Live. Thanks for listening in. We're talking to Steve of Sit. Uh, Abysnik. Upsitnik. Upsitnik, sorry. Upsitnik. Took me Who's... five years to get it right, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's running for the gubernatorial, the Republican gubernatorial nomination for the 2018 governor's race. So, Steve, you, you walked us through growing up in Stanford. You walked us through working in the Navy as an engineer. Now, before the time you came back to Connecticut, you were a Silicon Valley en uh, entrepreneur. Is that correct? In, in yes. California. So what companies did you start and what kind of work did you do? Yeah, so I, um, I, I moved out to California. I, after I got out of business school, I went to the Wharton School of Business. So you went to Wharton after the Navy? After the Navy. Did they pay for that? And No, I, I, I had to foot the bill, unfortunately. Um, and I met my wife on the first day. We got engaged on the last day. Her name's Suzanne Tager, and it turns out she grew up in Westport. So I always had these strings pulling me back to Connecticut. But I said, before we come back, because we talked about it, I said, let's go out to the Silicon Valley and let's see what's in their air and their dirt and their water. How do they do it? And we're we talking I, the 90s now? That was in 98, 98. And um, so I've worked with some of the greatest research and development organizations in the world, the first one being the Stanford Research Institute, which used to be part of Stanford University. SRI. And uh, they created uh, everything from ultrasound technology, stealth technology, the internet used to be managed out of SRI. And I would walk the labs of SRI looking for great technologies from great engineers that could change the world. What was your role? Were you an entrepreneur? When I first moved out there, I was a product manager. I worked with a great Silicon Valley um, uh, veteran named Paul Cook. And uh, he had started a company called Diva, which now when you pause your TV, order movies on demand, it's that system that we created. ESPN on demand, Showtime on demand. all. Of, so whenever you kind of get to pause your TV, we were kind of the forerunners of that industry. Um, and along the way, I went to Paul and I said, look, I, I want to I kind of create something uh, new myself. And I went back to SRI and talked to some engineers, found some technology, 
and we spun it out. And it was uh, a technology, it was in 2000, the internet bubble burst. It was a horrible time to start a business. Um, and I had to work- Sort my, of like a horrible time to become a governor of a broke state. You know, I, I, what does Churchill say? You know, optimism is uh, is when when you basically uh, find opportunity from uh, diversity or uh, division. Um, anyway, the um, I, I always run to the fire, Paul, when I when I when I'm asked to. Uh, so 2000 bubble burst. You're working SRI. You and somebody spin off. And we started a company called Discern Communications from the Artificial Intelligence Lab, and uh, we focused it on customer care solutions for large Fortune 500 companies. What does that mean, customer care? Um, so it was like when uh, Aetna used to be a customer of ours, United Rentals in the state. So whenever you call in for customer help, basically, if you talk to an agent or if you go to a website, we'd help get you information to solve your problems faster. And uh, voice over IP call centers were coming along at that point, And there was a big move to kind of putting more applications to get people closer to information. A person. So being, you guys develop a tool to help those infuriating call processes work a little more yes, smoothly. Yes, those IVRs, press one for this, press yeah. two. We, we press brought, three to jump out the window. We, yeah. we, we, we brought speech <laughs> recognition on top of that. We brought better customer uh, self-help services. And we did that all for companies that wanted to keep their call centers in, in the United States. Uh, we did it for... Federal, uh, federal government for you know, uh, intelligence agencies. We did it for um, state governments. We helped state governments kind of automate. Did their... you eventually sell the company? Or? That company was sold to uh, basically a subsidiary of Cisco Systems. Oh, wow. And, uh, and is this the connection you have to Siri? And then, yeah, so I ran that business unit for about you know, three years. And then in 2005, uh, that had taken my wife and I to Minneapolis because that's where that, that acquiring company was. And... Um, in 2005, we, we, it was time to, for a new, new journey. We were either going to go back to the Silicon Valley or come back home. And we came back home to Connecticut um, because we wanted to be here. I had uh, one and three-year-old children at that point. So you sold the company. We sold the company. I, I ran, then I ran the business unit for three years. And then it was just time. My time was up, basically. We came back to Connecticut here to raise our family. And there was no ecosystem for me here. There were no startup companies. There were no investors. And SRI called me back and said, come look at some of our technology. So I went back to SRI and um, I found you know, a code base there they've been working on that I was aware of called Siri. And it was a speech interface that allowed you to access information from multiple databases. The best friend of everyone under five now growing up in America. Yeah. And it's and uh, Adam Shire, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to give you any illusions that I, I was um, success has many gra grandchildren and I was one of many great people who helped make that a success. So what did you do with Siri? What was your job? Um, so I was the first one to, I, I first, before SRI wanted to, to set it out as a separate company, they said, Steve, go around to these big companies and see if they want to license it or buy it. I went to 80 companies, had 80 doors slammed in my face. No one had the vision for what Siri could bring. And uh, this is 2005, 2006, the smartphone, the Apple uh, iPhone wasn't even announced yet. And there was just a lack of vision on what's possible with technology. At the end of those 80 conversations, um, SRI basically had a conversation, either we have to do this alone and spin it out or, or, or not. And the decision was made to spin it out as a separate company um, and go out and kind of do what I've done before. But that was going to require me moving back, back to California. And honestly, Suzanne and I didn't want to move to California. And I didn't want to travel every week out there. So Siri went on its own way after I was involved for about a year, year and a half, and went on to become a, a great success. So you didn't have the meeting with Jeff Bezos? Uh, oh, me with uh, Steve Jobs. Oh, Steve Jobs. No, I, I'd met him pre previously yeah. at a time, but not, oh, not, not, not around Siri. Yeah. Um, so, then, um, so then I was stuck here in 2007. What, what am I going to do to earn a living? And um, basically, I started another company called Quintel, 
where we make smart antennas for AT&T and Verizon to make their, their cellular networks, that little 4G on your phone, uh-huh. Paul, to make those networks work. And um, we, uh, we had some technology, and we wanted to bring it, um, uh, basically develop a, uh, a headquarters around it, tried to bring it to Connecticut, didn't have the ecosystem I needed here because I needed applied research universities to help me. I needed uh, contract manufacturers and suppliers. That business ended up in Rochester, New York. Mm. Were, you, were you running it from a distance? Uh, I was running it from a distance, yes. Did you commute to Rochester? Uh, I commuted to Rochester. For how long? Um, for about four and a half, five years. Wow. And, uh, That's a schlub. And that was, but we had customers. Now, now Quintel has customers in four continents around the world. Um, we kind of power a lot of the cellular networks for the major telecom operators. And it's been a, it's been a great success. We had a really novel technology which is, uh, has done good things. And when did you leave that company and why? I left in 2012 when I ran for U.S. Congress. I, had a, uh, I was coming back from India, one of these two-day business trips to India, and had a pulmonary embolism. Oh. And uh, um, that just put in, over the next six months, put a, it just changed the path of my life a little bit, questioning I had young kids, what I want to do with my life. I had this collection of experiences. I know how... You do the, have an interesting collection of experiences. Yeah, well, I know how the world competes outside of Connecticut. I know how China competes in Singapore and the Silicon Valley. I know, I see why people move to those places to create opportunities and jobs. Um, and I felt like Connecticut was stuck. And uh, we, we don't have leaders, um, I, I think, in our state that know what's going on outside of the state to know how to turn the moving vans around and keep people here. So for the last three years, uh, have you not been... So I, yeah, so I ran for U.S. Congress in the 4th Congressional District in 2012. I was the Republican nominee at that point. Against Jim Himes? Against Jim Himes. Um, and um, uh, lesson learned there is make sure you leave a lot of time on the clock so people can understand the name Obsitnik, O-B-S-I-T-N-I-K. Because um, he was beatable. Um, yes, I think everyone's beatable. No, but right? especially a, Repu- a Republican of Fairfield County. Yeah, I mean, this is, and, and even and now... Democrat, I mean, Democratic... Even, even I think, yes, I mean, I, I think... Anyone in Connecticut who's a leader, especially part of this last eight years of six years of leadership, is beatable because people feel terrible here. Mm-hmm. Connecticut has survival syndrome. So you ran for Congress against Himes. You didn't ran, make it. Ran so for Congress in the yes. last five years. Th- th- then I went back to business. I uh, was working, and along the way, you know, my heart still gravitated more to the problems of Connecticut, and that um, that allowed me to then take some time to start a group. I had dinner with some folks one night and. They were upset about the budget, uh, the increase in taxation in Connecticut and the thought of leaving. And that prompted the creation of Imagine Connecticut. Um, uh, and it was a civic-powered group. We have uh, about 15,000 members. Uh, did that in about a year and a half. It turns out a lot of people want to imagine a better Connecticut. And that use John Lennon music as the theme or no? <laughs> I don't think we got that sophisticated. But, but I think that, um, you know, I think le- leaders are kind of dealers in hope in a lot of ways. And I think people, people want to believe that this place is is we can turn it around. Um, one third of the U.S. economy is within 500 miles of us. 40 mm-hmm. million consumers are with a two, within a 200 mile radius. We live along this I-95, 91, 84 corridor with access to major airports and seaports. Location hasn't moved out yet, Paul. And uh, we have 42 colleges that educate 250,000 kids every year. And yet you year. didn't see an ecosystem for applied research despite and, all those colleges. And we, and we, Does that we, mean the colleges stink or no one's putting them together? I, I, I believe that... Um, that our leaders in Hartford have never experienced what a true ecosystem, an urban-centered ecosystem is. 
And if you've never experienced something, you don't know what it feels like. You don't know how to bring uh, the resources together. And right uh, now you're experiencing Dateline New Haven and WNHH Radio, your home for community radio in New Haven. We're talking to Steve Upsitnik, who is running for governor for the Republican nomination in 2018. Steve, I want to uh, take a hold on a point you made right there. So you're talking about how we didn't have, you discovered firsthand when you were doing business and you would have rather located here, there wasn't the ecosystem, as you called it, with applied research and urban environments to grow those kind of companies. And so lately, and you, you alluded to this, and everyone running for office is going to be alluding to this, and this is why everyone thinks it's a Republican year next year, is we lost the headquarters of Aetna. We lost the headquarters of GE. In New Haven, we lost the headquarters of Alexion, which was one of the first five companies, got state support, tens of millions of dollars, to locate its headquarters here, only to leave within a year. The, uh, but here's what the Republicans are saying up at the Capitol. They're the same thing you just said in passing. Taxes are too high. People don't want to stay here. And yet, it was clear from the leaders of Aetna and GE and Alexion that they did not leave because of high taxes. In fact, they went to places, Boston, that had just as high taxes. They went because of that urban ecosystem you're talking about with the universities and the environment, the talent pool, and the dense environment of innovation and collaboration. So is it intellectually honest for people to run for office saying that it's because of taxes that we're losing jobs. Um, yes, it is. It is intellectually honest. Uh, right now, the income tax rate in Massachusetts is 5%. Ours is uh, 5.5%, I believe. Ours is 7 They want to reduce it to 4%. Is it the only driver? No, it's not. Is I li- it even remotely the driver? Because there are other uh, taxes, too, that are just as uh, high or higher yeah, in Massachusetts. It, 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 it is... It is the whole picture. And New York went, and no went. It, it, is, the, it is the whole picture, okay? It, it's around, where, I, I think that humans make decisions and businesses make decisions on three factors. Number one, as a, as a, as a, a worker, am I doing in my mind what I want to do for a living? What's my passion? Do I enjoy doing that work? Am I making enough money to keep in my pocket to live on and for retirement? And then do I enjoy being around the people I work with and I love, Right. Those are the three reasons why I think people and effectively corporations then leave. If they can find better trained people somewhere else, if they can compete at a, uh, uh, a better quality of life, at a better price point, or if, or if um, um, th- there are certain um, situations that governments make you feel unwelcome, you go somewhere else. On the RFP for, for Amazon, uh, did you That's read That's a request it? proposal. I did actually it, read that because New it, Haven submitted. Yeah, yeah so do, do, you, do you remember what the first requirement was on the RFP? Flexibility, correct? Which a was a, a which stable was, and friendly <laughs> business environment. That just means give us a lot of tax breaks so we can hold you against each other hostage. Yeah, but, but, I, but the truth is, I, I don't know if I agree Aetna, with that. Aetna went to New York where taxes are higher. When, when GE and Alexion went to Boston, they clearly, unlike the Alexion, uh, unlike the Amazon proposal, which was clearly getting communities to compete against each other, who will give the most tax breaks, they never mentioned any of that. It was always about, like GE was reinventing itself as a tech company. They wanted to be where MIT and Harvard and other universities were working together. Doesn't it take public investment to create that ecosystem? Uh, and part, how can you if you if you're cutting taxes? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think it's a partnership. I think you said the, the right thing. It's a partnership. Um, I will come back on the taxes a, in a bit, but but let's let's move over to that thread for a second. I think that one of Mayor Bloomberg's greatest legacies in New York we were talking about is the creation of Roosevelt Island. He didn't give away huge billions of dollars to people. He set it up pretty simply. If he put out a request for expression of interest to the world and said, "Who wants to be an applied research university?" in one of the largest cities in the world. He said, I'll give dirt and $100 million. You all bring a billion dollars, okay? Well, Technion moved from Israel. Cornell moved from the suburbs into the city. Google, Facebook, and Uber sat on top of those universities to train people and hire people. 
Um, six years later, I don't know if you've been to Roosevelt Island. It's like putting an EpiPen in your side. The energy feeling of young people there, old people there, restaurants, hospitals, hotels. It's, it's a vibrant urban ecosystem. Um, and we have some of those same advantages here. They have high taxes in New York. That's why Bloomberg was able to give them that dirt. They, the- they, they have high taxes there. But, you know, the, the straw that I think one of the straws that broke the camel back for GE is, is basically the unity tax that said, we're going to tax your global income at a Connecticut rate. And that was one of the key things that GE did mention. So right? you mentioned Roosevelt Island as one of your key campaign platforms in your quest for the Republican gubernatorial nomination. You said you would like to propose a Roosevelt Island project to transfer, to transform Connecticut's business environment. Now yes. I'm getting what you meant by that. What yeah. exactly would yeah, be so, the Roosevelt so, Island project? Yeah, so I, I think that we have potentially three projects in Connecticut, but I'll just take one, Paul. Um, I think we have to sit here and say, we, we are the gateway to New England ourselves. We, are, we have location. We're an hour and a half from Boston, an hour and a half from New York. Uh, we have universities. We have trained workforces, right? What we don't do well is we don't coordinate well. Fairfield County does what they does. Harford County does what they do. And we never had leadership that stands back and says, of the assets we have, how do we mobilize and integrate those assets better? And Roosevelt Island was a great example about how to do that. So I believe we have three great Roosevelt Island projects. The no-brainer is the town we're in, life sciences, healthcare delivery, hopefully around Yale being more applied research focused. Now, Yale has done that. It didn't used to do that. And then since 1993, it's been doing that with, with crop research. The problem yes. has been the companies leave once they hatch. Yes. Alexion, we brought back by giving them what you were saying, all these enticements that come, $20 million or more dollars of aid, but they still left I, after because of the and labor And so pool. you have to understand why do ecosystems, well, how do you anchor ecosystems? You anchor ecosystems around applied research universities, corporations that want to move and be involved with those corporations there, not just eventually lift technologies out like we've seen. I think it's then also creating an environment where you don't pick the first five winners and give tens of millions of dollars away. You know, Dan Malloy has this little magic box, and if you can squeeze into the box, you get tens of millions of dollars. And people always question, are those people, are those companies that wouldn't have yeah, so, left so, anyway? So, yeah. so here, here's, this is how you create an ecosystem. I'll give you an example. Last week, there was something in New Haven called the Connecticut Venture Clash. They gave away $5 million, I think to about three companies with about 10 employees with the hope that they're going to grow. Three employees. Okay, $500,000 a job. Check my math. I mean, it's, it's fairly close. I believe that our size of our economic development box can't be five companies. It can't be two or three cities. It has to be the size of the state of Connecticut. So here's my deal. This is what I'm looking at. If you create a job in the state of Connecticut, you get a $5,000 tax credit for, say, five years. I don't care if you're the independent, the Minuteman Cleaners, or ESPN. If you're going to commit to a worker... That's what I'm looking at, is how do we get every entrepreneur, small, medium, and large business to benefit from here? Because we don't know, and I don't know, you know, if I'm fortunate, when I'm fortunate to be governor, who the winner or the loser is, or who's going to actually commit to Connecticut. So those days have to be over. So we, we do need to invest in our, in our urban, the cities are our future. Our urban ecosystems have to be important. How do we get applied research universities here who may not be here today? And of course, Yale is playing catch up. Abs- cohort universities engineering was Abs- weak here absolutely and, and UConn's tried to push things forward the other the other challenge we run up against here and I would argue that our tech sector has been somewhat successful we're actually running out of room between Science Park and the 300 George Street which is connected with the Yale Medical School we're actually trying to build new space for the companies we want to hatch it's been suggested by one pundit here that maybe we should embrace that we're sort of like what the Schubert Theater was a half century ago, the birthplace of the nation's hits maybe we're the environment where you hatch the company but it's okay that we can't match the density 
of the labor pool in Boston and New I, York. I don't, you know, th that's where transportation comes in. I think we need to think differently. Like, we're, like we're a subscale state. We're, we're 3.6 million people. And um, I believe if we use transport, transportation correct, right, in terms of, and there's a whole lot of other issues to get in there, but imagine, you know, two hours and say five minutes from New Haven to New York. Right, it, everyone's talking, can we do the horrible, train there in an hour? Right, so. That's, but they say because of how old the track is in certain places, you physically can't make the track well, go fast well, enough. Well, well, let's do things. If we have to change the track, let's change the track. If we have to get the feds to put in positive train control to speed the trains back up to 2005 levels, let's have leadership that takes the cholesterol out of the system that improves people's lives. Because the mayor lives. of New Haven actually ran on that proposal in 2013, and then they said they couldn't actually make it happen. Yeah, so, you know... It, so but, you want to see an hour train into New York from... from, from I, New Haven. It's fa you know, I'd love to see Hyperloop here and get in there in, in 15 minutes. Is it going to happen in our lifetime? Who knows? We didn't know self-driving cars were going to be here. Um, but I think as leaders, we have to challenge the assumptions. We have to push hard on where the friction is in people's lives. So you physically think it can happen? We can have an hour train ride from New Haven to New York and that, that would actually transform our competitiveness. Uh, and, and all the way along the way. So if you're able to do that, you take three population centers, Stanford, Bridgeport, New Haven. Now all of a sudden you have 330,000 people, okay, who you can move people around, jobs to people, people to jobs, or in, into the city or to Boston. All of a sudden you're the third largest, call it quote unquote, city in the Northeast. You're really actually talking about more than 2 million people because you really have to look at Bridgeport, New Haven and their suburbs. And suburbs, but I'm just, I was just country, talking that about, would be a city. I was just yeah. talking around you know, about those population yeah. cities, right? Um, so it's even broader than that. What about buses? Um, they, that bus yeah. system is broken here. It's a hub and yes. spoke system that's based on the middle 20th century of where jobs are, what time people go to work, what time yes. the city shuts down. It's a, it's a system of last resort. I take the buses because I walk to work and sometimes bus. And... They, the routes make no sense. They shut down before you'd even go home. They go to once an hour, once every two hours. They don't go to the right place because the jobs are in different places. People have to take buses for hours to go 10 miles. And, that, and that's job. because, see, my mindset in business, and there's a, a guy named Jack Mitchell. Uh, he started uh, Mitchell's. He started Mitchell's, uh, a, a retail store. And he wrote a book called Hug Your Customers. Okay. I, my, my attitude, actually, in the military, in business, and in government would be you have to hug your customers. You have to understand what they need, what they need are, what their needs are, mm -hmm. and how to deliver them. And there's one Fortune 500 company that I, I actually went to visit not long ago. And at the end of my conversation with the, uh, the CEO, they said, Steve, how many people like you running for office have ever kind of knocked on my door and asked me what my needs are? I said, you've been here for a long time, 10, 20 He's like, you're the first person running for office who's ever come in and asked me what my needs are. Now, we say the politicians are all broke. There's definition of sanity to keep going with what we've gone with. Do you think it's possible they're not stupid and that they're inherent political and other barriers to making good decisions in Connecticut? Um, I mean, maybe they're not stupid. Maybe Lynn Fasano knows what he's doing. Maybe Martin Luther, you're intelligent. People trying to do the right thing, but that it's just hard structurally to bring about the change. And, and you know, I'm not going to discount that it is because I've been in hard situations, you know, business turnarounds and otherwise, where there are some realities out there. But after 30 years, you know, as uh, we've been on a road, and it appears to me to have been a road to ruin. And, and when Robert Frost says, when you get to the fork in the road, or as Yogi Berra says, when you get there, you take it. Um, you know, I'm, I represent... You know, the passion, the energy of the, of the job builder, the job creator, the entrepreneur. And that's been our history as a state. And we need to innovate around these problems. We just can't sit with mediocrity and sit, and sit with the status quo. Um, and there are many forces out there that have taken us down this path. And we are sitting with Steve Sitnik, who's running for the gubernatorial, the Republican gubernatorial nomination in the year 2018. And you're listening to us on Dateline New Haven at 103.5 FM, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. 
So why Republican? What makes you a Republican, Steve? Are you, are you a Donald Trump Republican? Are you an old, you mentioned Stuart McKinney earlier on, the former U.S. representative who was an environmentalist. And uh, what kind of Republican are you and why are you a Republican? Well, yeah, first I'm, a, first I'm a kid from Stanford who served in the military, served here, has been uh, created some high-tech jobs that have changed people's lives. And, uh, and I know what it takes to create an environment to turn the moving bands around. Number one, that's who I am as an individual. I'm an independent thinker. Um, I'm a fiscal conservative. Call me a social libertarian. Um, it's just my view of the world, and I know not everyone agrees with me. Um, and I found, you know, I ran on the Republican ticket before. I thought that you know, in terms of in this state, the Republican Party tends to give an outsider like me a chance at bringing fresh ideas. Um, I'm not sure if we're seeing the same thing of outsiders bringing fresh ideas to the Democratic Party. What's your take on President Trump? Um, is Steve Bannon going to be here I'm, helping you run? I'm not rooting for Donald Trump to fail. I didn't root for Barack Obama to fail. And you know what, Paul? Donald Trump didn't create our problems, and he's not going to solve our problems, so let's just solve our own problems. All right, so you're running as a problem solver. So what would you do right now at the budget? Today we got news of the budget deal has been ironed out with Republicans and Democrats in the legislature. We're the last state in the country yes. to, to not have passed the budget. We're, um, it's causing crisis in municipalities throughout the state about whether they'll be able to pay their bills. We, um, we had a $3.5 billion budget deficit to fill over the next two-year budget out of yes. $40 billion budget after the deal with unions that brought that down, $1.7 billion. What do you think of the deal? Would you sign it? And what would you do differently? Yeah, I, before walking down, I look at everything that's currently in it today. I think that the, uh, you know, we, have, we have a revenue problem and we have a spending problem. And um, on the revenue side, we have policies that drive people out of the state. You look at seniors, you look at millennials, you look at middle-class workers, and we need, to, we need to have policies in place that attract as opposed to repel people. And there's really nothing in there that actually does much to actually attract people to stay here in Connecticut. Um, these last two tax increases have done more to drive uh, income taxes out of Connecticut, which could have been uh, used to do a lot more benefits, create Roosevelt Islands, give a middle-class tax cut, things like that. Um, so I, I'm not going to give up on, on the revenue side of the equation in terms of the policies and procedures to keep people here. Because in my opinion... How would you get... We just what, collect less revenue? Or yeah, well, I, so, so I think Connecticut's become a $100 a restaurant. I think states are like restaurants. And we're a $100 hamburger. We're like that balloon place you may eat in New York. I've never been. But when you charge $100 for a hamburger, most people can't afford that. And you don't turn the tables. People walk across the street to the Shake Shack and it's five bucks for a burger and they give away some free music and Wi-Fi and people hang out and they turn tables. <clears throat> and I think that's what you see in states like uh, Florida and Tennessee. Um, they are more vibrant because they drive off consumption-based taxes in a lot of ways. Um, so I think we need to look at ways to keep people in the state. And right now, things like the estate tax, for every $1 it brings in, $4 of income tax has walked out the last three to four years. So where would you raise revenue? How would you shift that paradigm? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't raise revenue by keeping people in it. By getting rid of taxes that evict people, that allow people to stay here and still pay taxes, or you use consumption-based taxes by just living in the state of Connecticut. I'd rather people be here for eight months in a day rather than six months in a day because I get two more months of them shopping in our restaurants and By and consumption taxes, stores. you would raise the sales tax? No. So where, what kind of consumption taxes would you I, rely on? To collect revenues, there is a price and there's the number of people who pay it. If you keep the price constant or go down, but you increase the number of people like what's happening in Florida, you can collect more revenue. But that is like the Laffer curve where you're, you're saying because lowering taxes I, will create more economic activity, will create 
I, 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 I do believe that we've increased our taxes to the point that we have forced people out of the state. And I've talked to hundreds of people. Okay. And people inherently don't want to move. People, people don't want to move. But at some point when, when you're um, like my handyman who makes 40, 50 bucks an hour and he lives next door to someone else who's getting much better benefits than retiring 20 years earlier and he doesn't have health care, where does he go? He goes to North Carolina. He had, I just saw him two days ago. Uh, he came back up to visit his family and stopped by. So the increased cost of living, t- in- increased taxes, increase the cost of living here. If you look at anyone's own, what you spend money on, the second or third line on for most people is going to be the cost of your state taxes. And we live with high taxes and horrible quality of services. I was just at the DMV in Norwalk the other day with a friend of mine, Saturday morning, a line of 100 people, 15 minutes before it opened, 100 people. And I was there last summer with my father-in-law. Why can't they fix the DMV? Republican governors, Democrat governors have all said we're going to fix the DMV. You know, I have... I, Why is it so broken? Um, it's obviously a leadership problem. Uh, tone says culture. Culture is destiny. Um, I have built software systems at the federal, state, and local level for the, the DMV out in Minnesota. The so you can, fi- you can fix the DMV because this... I'm going to hold you to yeah. If you get elected... You come back in three years, you're going to have to say, I fixed the DMV. You, uh, you think you can create a software program to fix the DMV? I have built systems that have brought better quality of service at lower cost points to government. That is an important thing. And that's how you drive down the spending side of the equation. When you were waiting at the right? DMV, did you see anything that you would do differently if you were creating new software? Oh, I, absolutely. There, you know, there's no, but my number was D107. D107. I still remember that a year and a half later. And, uh, um, it's totally random about how long you're going to be there. There is no, there is really no good quality of service or customer service there. Also, when I when I was there, a gentleman came up to a woman next to me, and she walked in and said, "I can't sit here for three hours." And he walked in and said, "Well, you can take my spot." And she's like, "That's very nice of you. What can I give you?" "Oh, just a hundred dollars." Gave him a hundred dollars. You know what he did? He put it in his pocket and he walked home. That's what he does every day. We're creating entrepreneurs in the DMV who sit there and get a ticket and then sell it. You should hire that guy in your administration if you want. He's pretty there, entrepreneurial. There, there, there is some wisdom in there, isn't there? And he's probably not getting taxed. So would you have, so the budget compromise, for instance, is raising cigarettes 45 cents a pack to $4.35. It's going to be tied to New York, the highest in the country. Does that bother you? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of those taxes are regressive on the people that they hurt most. I think the, this current budget does more to not address our fixed costs, quote unquote, um, of people and the voiceless who are the um, uh, people who need special ed, child protective services, mental health, um, lower wage folks are the ones that get hurt. It's time that those people have a voice. All right. So Steve Sitnik, you are running, you are following in the footsteps of other business people who have run for either statewide office, either governor or Senate as Republicans, who have argued that as business people who have not been politicians, they could run government better. That has worked in other states. Rick Scott got elected in... in um, Mitch in, Daniels, in, yes, Charlie yeah, Baker. Illinois. I can keep going on. But in Connecticut, it hasn't been such a successful story. So Tom Foley managed to do the impossible. He was a Republican governor candidate for two, two times in a row, running against someone who at times was the least popular governor in Connecticut, Dan Malloy. Had no chance of winning, and Malloy beat him both times. Not by much the first time. It took a few days to count those votes. Um Linda McMahon spent $50 million each time she ran against Democrats for open Senate seats, Dick Blumenthal and uh, Chris Murphy in 2010 and 2012. She lost as well. Do you think, does that give you any pause? How is your story going to be different? I think that with, with this last budget where Dan Malloy tried to push a third of the teacher's pension costs down the town, that woke up the state of Connecticut. 
that was very different even when I ran for Congress four years ago. People are engaged. They're upset. People have survival syndrome. How am I getting out of Connecticut? When are you getting out of Connecticut? Enough is enough. So people, it's much worse, right? I have, and people recognize the size of the problem. And it's a nonpartisan statement that our governors have been nonpartisanly horrible uh, in terms of- You think Weicker was horrible? For 200 years, this state thrived without an income tax. And in 30 years of the income tax, with no spending cap, we're bankrupt. Causation or correlation, we can talk over lunch Could afterwards. Could be pensions, yeah. 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 Um, so I think part of it is how the people feel, number one. Number two, we need to have all the athletes on the field right now. Connecticut deserves to have all the athletes running for governor on the field. And this has to be an election of ideas. Because we're only, we have yeah. to address our fiscal mess, but we eventually have to find a way to inspire people to grow and invest in Connecticut again. has to be an election of ideas. I like that one. Yeah. So now you're running in a big pack. How are you going to break out? So in the Republican pack, we can't go through all the people because we only have an hour to be on radio, but everyone's running for governor. I think we're up to 8,700 candidates or something. The uh, David uh, Stemmerman is a Greenwich hedge fund manager who's already put $1.8 million into his own campaign. Bob Stefanowski's put a mere 250000 of his own money so far. Are you putting your own money into the campaign? Um, you, I'm, I'm participating in the citizen's election. Uh, oh, you're, going, you're running clean, public yes. finance. Yes. Very interesting. Yes. And I'm, uh, I'm going to let the people um, that support me, uh, we are hundreds of donors away from uh, effectively uh, being able to submit our Because it's not easy to qualify. It's not. It's, it's a, it, and it shouldn't be easy. You know, I make 100 calls a day. If any of your uh, listeners want to go to www.steveobsitnik.com, I'd love to earn your support. Maximum $100 donation. So you're a Fairfield County businessman running for the Republican gubernatorial nomination, but rather than putting your own money in, you're running, you're running clean and green with the public financing. Yes. What now? Right now, there have been proposals to defund public financing in Connecticut. People say, "Why are we?" Especially your party actually is yep. the biggest opponent of this. Why should there be? Why do you disagree with leaders of your own party about public financing? Uh, whatever, whatever the budget decides, I will be engaged. So whatever path we, you know, we have to go down to compete. No, no, but for what about future? the concept of using taxpayer money to help people run for office? Why um, are you yeah, running? I, look, I, I see pros. I see pros and cons to it, and um, that came in before the days of political action committees and everything else. So it's been normalized a bit. I can see that it is definitely a use of public funds, but I also think it's a way of of garnering a lot of support from people along the way. If people give you five and ten dollars, they're invested in you. Um, Actually, the Citizens' Election Campaign in Connecticut came after PACs. It was after John Rowland's corruption scandals. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And we created that system in Connecticut saying this will make government cleaner and give more people a chance to run. But Citizens United came after that. Right, Citizens yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So, but are, do you, are you philosophically in support of public financing for campaigns? Uh, I, I have no problem with it. I, I, I don't. I, I think that um, if it's the will of the legislatures and the people, it, it's, it's a, a tactic out there that as a candidate you have to look at. And along the way... I've met so many more people who are, have bought into my or invested in my campaign at 5 and $10 that that shapes my view a lot as opposed to just dropping in a lot of money and not having the perspective of, of people, hardworking people and what they want from you. So you one know? argument for someone like you in the past is, well, gee, why are you going to give up the ability to buy those big TV ads when it comes down the home stretch if you make the cut? But I'm wondering now if the paradigm has shifted there as well, that it's not the big TV buy anyway, that maybe you maybe not need as much money as you might have needed five, 10 years ago to run if you're smart with how you target your social media and your marketing? Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I know that people feel horrible. Uh, they don't like the path we're on. They're looking for new ideas and a new path. And I tend to think that we are never, we are never limited as humans by the amount of money we have. We're, we're limited by the quality of our ideas. And ideas win the, the battle in the end of the day. 
And you have to be a good messenger of those ideas. And I want to be challenged on my ideas. I want to be roughed up. I want to, you know, I want to be made uh, to sweat over ideas because my ideas have to be strengthened. I don't have all the answers, but I have a deep passion for this state. Um, and I want to turn the moving vans around. And I don't, uh, I don't notice any sweat breaking out yet. We've been going 43 minutes. We have just a few <laughs> minutes left here in Dateline, New Haven, with Steve Sitnik, who's running for governor. Let's do a quick lightning round, Steve, on where you stand on certain issues. Or you did public financing. You're cool with it. Single-payer health insurance. Mm-hmm. Pro or con? Um, I, I still want to work through you know, the private markets and see how the ACA is formed out of, out of Washington before I So make what about Obamacare? Uh, I think Obamacare... Look, if we look in Connecticut, what it's done in Connecticut, before Obamacare came in, about a billion dollars was spent on Medicaid. 500,000 people were covered. After six years, 750,000 people are covered. Let's just say that was, we can talk pro or con about that, but more people are covered. But over that time, Dan Malloy has taken his $500 million, and this year we'll give about $60 million for Medicaid. So the hospitals pick up $440 million. The problem I have with politicians and career politicians is when they make a promise, but then they don't pay for it. So if you want to expand something, either pensions or health care costs or whatever, just pay for it along the way. Don't take it from someone else's pocket. And that's what we've seen in Connecticut relative to the ACA. Sanctuary states. So uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, has Connecticut and other communities like it in their mm-hmm. crosshairs because we do not participate in secure communities where we cooperate with federal detainer requests right. for uh, undocumented workers. Would you continue that policy, sanctuary policy? Yeah, I, I, I don't support sanctuary states uh, or, or cities. Um, I'm, uh, I was trained by the U.S. military. I have high regard for the law, following the law. I don't think we should reward people who do break the laws. But I do think we have to, Congress, and I've said this often, has to put in place a system and a process for dealing with immigration. And it's on Washington for dealing with that. And they've inserted a lot of this uncertainty over time. And it's the overuse of these executive orders then, which, you know, one president puts in and someone flips it. Congress just has to bring some security, especially in this post 9-11 world, and not force a city like New Haven to have to make decisions. I think our federal government has to be more clear through our own representation. Well, New Haven, the problem is the police have made it felt the city got a lot safer when they stopped asking people about their immigration backgrounds because then victims of crime were cooperating with them. And I know know there are two sides to that that discussion. Tolls. Would you return tolls to the interstate highways at the borders? I I think giving Hartford another blank check is the last thing that we can do right now. We need to prove to ourselves, or at least under my administration, that we will rein in spending. We, We can do better than what we're doing right now at a better price point. What would you cut to rein in spending? Uh, oh, there's always my favorite that the Department of Labor, I think it was last year, audited 61 sports leagues. By that I mean like Westport Soccer and Brantford Field Hockey and these the, our kids' sports leagues. And why did they audit them? Because those referees on the weekends, those hardworking adults during the week, they said those actually aren't you know contractors. They're actually full-time employees and you should pay withholding tax on it. If we have enough labor in the Department of Labor to audit our kids' sports leagues, give me a break. We need to do more to kind of keep people in the restaurant than force them out. All right, marijuana legalization. I'm a supporter of medical marijuana. Um, I, I've looked in the issue strong. I've had friends who've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan that has given them a supplemental opportunity. Well, we have medical marijuana. Yep. The question now has been whether we legalize recreational use of marijuana or they may. Yeah, may, and, and, may and I, I think that breaks down two things. I think the argument of it's, it's a revenue generator from everything I've said, it's a $50 million uh, source of revenue. It's not going to solve our budget problems. So on that alone, I think it's more of a question about you know the cultural values. 
um, to our state. I'm open to having discussions with people about it and learn more. I'm, I'm not a user, but I'd like to be educated more. But as far as a source of revenue that's going to solve our budget problem, it's not that. So you don't have a position of whether or not to legalize it, but you don't want to see it as a magic bullet for alleged magic bullet for closing it, a budget cap. It is not a magic bullet for that. Uh, I earned income tax credit. Now this budget compromise is actually rather than taxing the rich is taxing the working poor and the middle class by raising and teachers. the threshold at which point, right, that's crazy. But yeah. at what point the earned income tax credit applies? Do you agree with the idea of raising the minimum at which the earned income tax credit? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely, look, I think we have to balance to keep people in this state. And that's, that's not the super wealthy and it's just not the working poor. We, we need to come together as a state w- without a barrier between counties, right? And find ways to keep people here and grow our economy. And I will look at any tool that we have in our toolbox. So what would that. you, if you were the governor right now and you were brought this budget and they said, we want to throw a bunch of people off their income tax credit, would you agree with that or not? I, I haven't seen what's on, what came out this morning. I have to get back okay. to you on that. How do you respond to the state education federal lawsuit, that's CCJF versus REL, where Judge Malkhauser said that the state has an unconstitutional and irrational way of funding the schools, specifically in diverting money for poorer school districts to suburban school districts? How would you fix that? Yeah, I, I think that, I think the other part was, is that we spend enough money on education, but it's not divvied up correctly. Uh, so I am talking to a lot of people on that. I think it's a, it's a serious issue that when I graduated from Stanford High, I went to one of the, um, one of the first schools um, in Stanford that was integrated, Stanford High School. And uh, Mort Lowenthal, who was a great citizen of, of Stanford, was one of the forerunners to drive more racial integration. I saw the benefits of that. I still think we drive around this state in, in towns, and we still see segregated school systems. And certain kids, like I, I think I picked good parents in my life. And that set in, uh, probably the best decision I've ever made, that set in life opportunities for me. And I think if you're a great kid who's picked great parents in New Haven or Bridgeport or whatever town, you should have similar opportunities that other people have in other towns. Looks like this compromise budget is going to bail out the city of Hartford, $40 million, which you have agreed with that strategy. Um, I'd have to look deeper into that. In general, I think that we have to just be careful that the, the cost structures that our town municipalities are under can support themselves. And there's a reason why negotiation is out there to make sure you have long-term security for our towns. And we can't afford to pay costs that, that the people of New Haven today can't bear. Final question. You're here in New Haven. And thank you for coming to New Haven. Steve. My pleasure. What a, what a pleasure, a pleasure to meet you. I love a campaign of ideas. That's what we live for. New Haven last, elect, last voted for a Republican for any office, citywide or statewide or national, in 1951. What's your elevator pitch to New Haven about why they should vote for you for the first time in 66 years, vote for Republican? Yeah, look, we, for 30 years since I graduated from Stanford I we've been going down a road. And I understand why people have been on that road. And if people think another career politician is going to solve the problem that a career politician created, keep going down that road. I believe it's been a road to ruin. Or as I said, we're at that fork in the road. And I represent the fork of, you know, getting our fiscal mess in order, and also how do we innovate and grow our way forward. So come down my path, the path of the small business job builder. And thank you for coming to Bath and New Haven. Really my appreciate pleasure. that you yeah. did this. Let's sitting. do it again soon. We are. You're always welcome here on Dateline New Haven and WNHH Radio. Thanks to our guest, Republican gubernatorial Steve Upsitnik. You can look him up in the afternoon at O-B-S-I-T-N-I-K. Once you get, get it, never forget it. And uh, special thanks to Yellow Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. 
Book your flight with us all day long here and all night at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.